<laughs> David, my friend, it is always good to see you, sir. You looked How at you me doing? very you looked at me very weird. That's why I laughed. <laughs> well, we do these uh things via this computer magic and uh yeah, there you are. I'm up yeah. here in Alaska, you're in Ohio. I'm in Ojai, California, where uh temperatures kind of have come down a bit, but they're forecasting another heat bubble. So uh, I'm not going to say the words climate change. I'm not going to say that. Which, by the way, you know, scientists are calling global warming global heating because that's a better descriptive. It's a more scientific term, global heating. Yeah, we're going into the warm house, into the hot house. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Uh, but actually, not not so much here. Uh, but actually, yeah, tell one me, of the how, effects. How's Alaska? Tell me how Alaska is. I miss Ketchikan. Well, uh, this is day three of a storm, oh. so sometimes the storms last and last, but it's kind of whimpering down, it's whimpering out now, but it's it's still kind of dark and gray out there, rainy. So this storm, is this like a, a low pressure in the Pacific Ocean turning counterclockwise, and as it turns counterclockwise, this huge band of, of moisture and, and rain comes from the southwest into Ketchikan. We have discussed this before, and I, yeah, you can look on, uh, there's this wonderful app called, um, what the heck is it called? But uh, you can see the storms weather. coming. It's called, it's called weather. Weather. Yeah, weather maps. <laughs> but anyways, you can see them coming from the Pacifics, directed straight at us here in Southeast Alaska, so. Yeah, it's all right. You know, I mean, I'd, I would rather take the rain uh, than um, uh, intense heat. I can't yeah. really adapt to heat or fires, man. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, this this storm is it like constant wind and the waves are whipping up? You know, Ketchikan is in the inside passage, so it's kind of protected by the the barrier islands. Yeah, we are we are protected more or less, um, but yeah, we it can howl through here. We get hundred mile winds here from time to time. No way. This storm started three days ago, and you can see it coming. Everybody battens down their hatches. There's been uh, some trollers that are passing through town, and they all tied up. They're waiting for the storm to pass because they have to go through Canada, and they get fined if they even stop in Canada. Why? One of them was saying a million-dollar fine because of the COVID. The COVID. Oh, right, 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 right. They're not allowed to tie up, go ashore or anything, okay, wait a minute. or even it's... get fuel. We're recording this the end of September. You're saying that the COVID thing is still an issue in September <laughs> in 2020? Uh, yeah, if you're you saying, look at wait, the numbers. Wait, you mean you mean the the United States hasn't put this uh, nip this in a bud? Well, uh, Dave, no, I don't know if you've heard oh, any of the news, oh, but yeah, uh, right, right, okay. There was yeah. the second wave, and now we're maybe in the third wave. Well, oh, no, oh, no, we haven't. Seriously, we have not hit a second wave yet, uh, because I did a little studying of pandemics, plagues, the Black Plague. Uh, did you know there was a massive anthrax plague that happened? I think in the the thirteen hundreds. But um, here's one thing that all plagues and the and the great flu pandemic of uh, 100 years ago, there's one thing they all have in common, one thing, and that is no matter what time of year they start, there is always an autumn second wave, which is always. worse and deadlier. And why do you think there's an autumn? 
second wave. Mm, yeah, because everybody Why? goes back indoors there and they start go. spreading it. And There you go. Yeah, and so I'm about to venture out into the lower 48 uh, next yeah. week. And, You're uh, going to brave an aircraft with a closed circulatory system. Yes, I'm going to wear a mask the whole way. And, uh, apparently I, the aircraft uh, filtration systems are superior as far as filtering out. You know what that's from? That's from the days when they allowed you to smoke cigarettes on an aircraft. Hey, so actually they put filters on the airplanes because of smoking back in the day? I, I cannot say that with any uh, intelligence, but our good buddy Tom Fowler told me that he once had a job of cleaning these filters that would come in after a flight, and he said they were they looked like a beehive dripping with black tar. You know, you pull out the, the honey of the beehive cove. He said oh, man. they'd be dripping with black tar from all the cigarettes. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. I used to smoke all those uh, years ago. And yeah, I used to too. smoke in airplanes. It's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. We live, we learn. On we, we go, live man. And we learn, and on we go. Yeah. So, uh, crazy stuff in the news, a lot of weird stuff in the news. There was a story about a mosasaur, uh, and it's got the strangest name. Um, Gotta learn that Latin, man, and then we practice it before we do the show. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I saw that too. There's a mosasaur found in Colorado. Yeah, yeah. And it's got. Um, uh, and they I thought will... it was just uh, any old mosasaur, lumped it into this other group, and then someone looked at it and went, wait a minute, it's so different. Yeah. But you know, the closest group to mosasaurs, well, I know that uh, Komodo dragons and monitor lizards are basically very close to mosasaurs, but snakes are very close to mosasaurs in the old evolutionary tree. Now, that is really, really weird that snakes, when you think about them, are pretty much related to these giant, almost like giant skinks that were in the ocean. Yeah, they yeah. had huge teeth. And uh, mosasaurs had, had, did they have, they, they had they flippers? Had, they had flippers, they had four flippers. But, you know, here's the mind-blowing thing is that they're actually do they, has... Do they have hands? Do they have like... Yeah, yeah. You can see beautiful five fingers in each really? of the flippers, just like a great extension. So they were like hand. giant lizards, giant lizards, yes. 50 feet long. Yeah, 50, some approaching 60 feet. But here's the mind-blowing thing is that there actually have been some theories put out there that snakes are directly evolved from mosasaurs. In other words, it's a double dipper so that there might, and I, that theory has been pretty much uh, uh, discredited now, but right. uh, that's how close it is that there's been this theory that maybe mosasaurs then you know, they went back to the water, and then this is a creature that maybe came back up onto land. Yeah, but there's no the proof. I think I asked I asked one of our guys, uh, did someone leave the ocean, go to land, go back to the ocean, and then go back to land? And I think... Uh, that was Pat Druckenmiller. We talked about marine reptiles. But that, yeah. that is one of the theories, yeah. So anyways, it's out there. So this mosasaur, it's called a Nathomortis stat many. Okay. Nathomortis... And that means, uh, I'll give you the, it's derived from Greek and Latin words for jaws of death. <laughs> yeah, Morty, yeah, jaws of death. You know, that's a cool thing. You get to read up these names. And I think that our guest today has named many a beast. Really? You know? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty so, sure, yeah. Uh, wh what do you do to get to name? I thought people named beasts after certain people, like you have the ratfish named after you, Hydrolagus troli. But how do you get to name a beast? Is that by describing it in a paper? 
Yeah, and the way you get a creature named after you is you get to be friends with these uh these Yeah, scientists. no, no, but, but how do you get to name a beast? You have to prove that it is a new beast and by comparing a it to species. all the other beasts, the new species. So the first animal that usually is uh, found and described is called the type specimen, from what right. I understand. The type right. specimen. Like, oh, this is new. We're going to take this specimen and we're going to look at all these other creatures and prove that it is absolutely new. And then if you can prove that it is absolutely new, nobody can dispute it, and that it is its own species, if not its own genus sometimes, which is a higher classification. Okay, well, you know, if you ever look at the ancient mammoths from the last million years, they had all these strange tusk shapes and sizes, and some were shovel tusks. You stand them side by side. One's a shovel tusk. One is a huge, encompassing, giant, beautiful, you know, the, the classic mammoth tusks we see. Are those two different species or two different Well, in the terms families? of the shovel... The shovel tusk, that's a very that's dramatically different and that, that is a entirely different genus and, and group of elephants. But okay, well, the tusks themselves, you've got to prove if that's just something within a population okay, you know, but, that's but varying. Define for me family and species and genus. Oh man, you're talking to an artist again. I, so I know, I know, but, but but just in a in a in a mammoth, let's say. So we have two different I, mammoths. One's a shovel tusk that looks like it's got a shovel on its mouth. The other one is your classic woolly mammoth with the giant, beautiful ice age cartoon tusks. Well, the shovel tusk would definitely be in a different genus. A and genus. Actually so think of genus as meaning general. Ah. And species as being specific. Oh, okay. oh, my goodness, all these years, I never... And then there's the family, you belong to this family, and then there's right. the general group within that, and then there's the specific. So we are the last, take humans, we are We're homo, homo sapiens, sapiens, and there were several other types of, you sure. know, of humans on the planet 100,000, 200,000 years ago. Yeah, we belong to the group of the great apes. But Homo so sapien is our genus? Homo is our genus. Sapiens is our species. Ah, okay. So Homo neanderthalus. Right, right. Is, oh, Got okay. It. Okay. So like with the salmon, there are all variations on Ankarink. Here you go. Salmon. Here you go with salmon again. <laughs> <laughs> it's a salmon town, man. It's always salmon. It's all, I bring it back to the salmon. You know, the place is reeking of salmon right now. So it's like everywhere. Didn't you say someone gave you a king salmon off a, a fresh off a trawler and you ate it the other night? Trawler, not trawler, man. What? You never say, don't say trawler in Southeast Alaska. You'll get. Hold on, T R A W L E R. Is that how you spell That's it? Trawler, yeah. Right. Think of my name, Troll, as a cool name. How do you the spell troll. Troller? How do you spell Troller? T R O L L E R. What? It's not a T R A W L E R? Heck no, man. Well, what's a the trawler, difference? to trawl is to take a big, huge net and scoop everything up. Oh. And they right. are. And usually bottom trawls are scraping everything off the bottom. Factory trawlers. Is that the with... same boat that had uh, stupid is as stupid does? Was that a huh. trawler? Uh, Bubba Gump? Bubba Gump? That yeah. was a trawler. Yeah, because they're scraping the shrimp. Trawling. Yeah. But a but troller... to troll, to troll oh. is to very specifically with a hook. Right. And it's one of the cleanest fisheries. It's like the the fish chooses to die. Right. <laughs> if you will. <laughs> right. They are attracted. Oh, that looks good. And okay. they and they pick they them out. They slowly steam at a very slow speed and they troll and, along. 
They troll. Oh, I had no idea there was. Yeah, two to troll is to actually troll the ancient. As this is incredible. Along. We got genus as be- I had no idea about the genus and species, and now trawler and troller. That's that's awesome. Today. Oh man, like I said, they have outlawed trawling in Southeast Alaska, which is great because it's protected the habitat here. So we like to think that our salmon fishery here is sustainable, and we can eat that salmon with impunity. Well, I heard this fantastic story about a guy who uh, was a trawler out of San Francisco Bay, and he decided during the uh, financial uh, crisis when he had all this downtime and was almost about to lose his business, he stuck cameras on his nets. He wanted to see what does it look like down there. And he got the camera cam, the fish cam is what he called it. He got it back up and he noticed that he didn't have to have his nets at the bottom of the ocean, scraping the floor and ruining everything. In fact, if he were able to raise his nets just slightly above the seafloor, he was able to get a better and a more sustainable catch. And that gave him the opportunity to augment the shape of his net and the size of the actual netting. And he was able to let the the young ones go and keep the the prized fish well, that's the hope with uh, when you're using nets uh, with uh, fishery that you can, you know, certain animals can go right through or right. be released so that seabirds and But he sea invented turtles. a way of not scraping the bottom, which, as yeah, you yeah. know, is so destructive. Uh, sort of more it, of a it, midwater, deep yeah, water trawl. But the story was about uh, he was looking at his fish cam and he saw the shiny thing go by and it was a bar of gold. Yeah, and then he saw more bars of gold, and we're talking a thousand feet below the Pacific, and it was an incredible story. I think it was on a NPR show called Snap Judgment. It was really a great story. Bottom line is, it's too hard, too dangerous. It would have entailed a, a nightmare to recover that gold, and how would you find it again? Huh. I once talked to a woman who saw a cow from a submarine once, so that kind of beats the gold bar story in a way. What? You mean a, a dead cow that had sunk? Yeah, just there was there they were looking at oh rockfish and uh, looking for rockfish in their habitat, <laughs> and then like there's a cow. Oh. All right, well, I'm going to segue into, you know, what kind of looks like cow-like, dog-like, strange creatures with beaks there, but they look like mammals, but they have beaks. Do you know what those are? Kind of look like mammals. Tell me, Dave, I think you've been studying up, man. I sure have. And tell me, the tell me. weirdest thing, they're called uh, cynodonts. Cynodonts. Yeah, and... Um, they are well. You know what? I'm not going to even get into it. We're going to get our, our yeah, guest today. Go, we'll to, go to way deep with this. All right. Well, should we give him a ring on the old wireless? I think we should give him a ring a ding a ding, man. Yeah. <laughs> Let's call him up. See what Christian's doing. Hey, Dave. Meet Christian Cedor, professor of biology at the University of Washington and the curator of vertebrate paleontology at the Burke Museum in Seattle. Hey, Christian. Good to see you, man. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Great to meet you, Christian. But it's weird because that doesn't look like the University of Washington behind you. Uh, yeah, I've got a variety of screensavers or whatever museums around the world and places I've dug up fossils and things like that. My office otherwise looks kind of like a hostage video. <laughs> I was going to say, whenever you're tired of the Burke Museum, you you travel elsewhere, at least in your background. Hey, Christian, I've had the honor of having two exhibits at the Burke Museum. I'm really looking forward to my next exhibit. 
cruising the fossil coastline opens there in December. And, and I know you've been busy pulling some fossils for that exhibit, right? Yeah, we've got some fossil whales. We've got the uh, Blue Lake Rhino, some <gasps> pieces of that. Oh, really? Yep, some ca- yeah, cast pieces that we actually had in the collection here that are going to go on display. Okay, now this is amazing. The Blue Lake Rhino is a 15-million-year-old mold of a North American rhinoceros that died and its upside-down bloated body got covered by lava, leaving the imprint and some bones in a cave in central Washington state. It's a mold of a 15-million-year-old rhinoceros. You'll find a link to this insane discovery on our webpage, paleonerds.com. Uh, I'm still trying to talk to Pat Druckenmiller about getting a cast of his little thalatosaur. Maybe actually you're going to bring one of those for I us? I am bringing you a cast of Gunnika Date, the uh, thalatosaur from southeast Alaska. Yes, sir. I'm bringing that on the airplane. And Christian, like I said, I, I've hung out with you a few times over the years, but are you a paleo nerd, man? You are a paleo nerd, right? What's your definition of paleo nerd? Um, what? Come on. You what know you if you are one is? or not, man. Are, yeah. are you? Yeah, either you are or you aren't. <laughs> well, I guess I am then. All right. <laughs> so how did you get to your paleo nerddom? What is your backstory? Where are you from? I grew up in Connecticut. Okay. And um, and I think I had the the usual fascination with dinosaurs and fossils growing up. And probably a big part of that was my grandmother. We used to go down and visit my great-grandmother in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And we would go sometimes to visit the Yale Peabody Museum. Ah. And so I would go there every so often. And that's probably just the, you know, the usual catalyst for a, a kid that age. And then I sort of forgot about it. You know, I wasn't really you – know, there's some paleontologists, as you know – that they get hooked as like six-year-olds and they don't let go until they go to grad school. They, you know, they, they do everything into paleo, right? I was not one of them. I went off, did a lot of other things, and I was doing a, a research project in biology, actually on frog musculature. Oh. And I presented this at a conference at Brown University. There used to be the American Society of Zoologists. And when I was giving that talk about my undergraduate research, I saw a bunch of talks about paleontology. And I said, oh, this is pretty cool. You know, it's basically biology except on dead stuff. Yeah. And and so when I wound up – and I knew I wanted to go to grad school in biology. But just seeing some of those talks made me think, oh, I should actually explore doing paleo as well. So I actually applied half to sort of regular zoology programs and half to paleo programs. And when I went to interview at the University of Chicago, I was like, oh, this is awesome. This is This is what I want to do. The grad students were there, were great. The faculty were great. They were doing all really interesting stuff. And, you know, fortunately, I got accepted to the program, and that's that was the end of it. And you uh, worked a lot with Sereno, Paul Sereno? Yeah, so I went on a, a bunch of – he was on my thesis committee, and I Wait, went who is? On, who is Paul Sereno? Yeah, Paul Sereno is a famous dinosaur paleontologist at the University of Chicago. This has done a lot of fieldwork in South America and uh, Africa. And when I was there, my first year of grad school in 1994, that next summer in 1995 – Paul invited me to go to Morocco, and I think we were gone for three months. Wow, two and a half, wow. three months. That's an exotic yeah. start, so, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was that was yeah, jumping jumping in with two feet, right? Um, and so that was three months there, and I, you know, Paul was not. I didn't do dinosaurs for my thesis. I was working on therapsids with Jim Hobson. But 95, 97, and two thousand three trips that were all two months plus digging up dinosaurs. Uh, in Morocco or in Niger. What was the strata 
Paul's stuff is all Cretaceous. Yeah, at that Cretaceous point. stuff. You worked on uh, Spinosaurus, the infamous Spinosaurus a bit, right? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the fossils that we collected from Niger was a Spinosaurid relative okay. called Suchomimus. Uh Paul more recently has been working on some of that, the original, the real Spinosaurus stuff, which is from the Sanamanian of Morocco and, and Egypt originally. Um, and that's where all that yeah, really spectacular new material has come out, suggesting that it's uh, aquatic dinosaurs which is something that people are still getting a little bit of a hard time understanding <laughs> or getting a handle on. Yeah. I read something about uh, a complete Spinosaurus skeleton in the Berlin Museum that was destroyed by Allied bombing. Is that true? Or Oh, yeah. Yeah, so the original, the original Spinosaurus was collected by Ernst Stromer in the 1910s or 1920s. Yeah, somewhere around like there, that. yeah. And then it was brought back to Germany. I'm not positive it was in Berlin. It might have been in Munich. And that material wasn't complete, but it was a backbone and a part of a skull and a bunch of other parts, enough to name the new species on at the time. And yeah, it was destroyed in, in wow. Allied bombing. Wow. Yeah. So it was the holotype, right? The first specimen found and was destroyed. Exactly. We killed, exactly. we killed so, that dinosaur, man. But Again. <laughs> But uh, so you you started out with dinosaurs, Paul Sereno, but you you said early on that you were working on these therapsids. And uh, Dave and I have been talking about therapsids and synapsids and cynodonts. And can you help us define what the heck they are? I know that if I say non-mammalian or, or mammal-like reptile, I'm absolutely wrong. Walk us through that, will you? My primary research is on, broadly speaking, the ancestry of mammals, right? Okay. And so mammals and reptiles, as we know them today, diverged from one another back about 320 million years ago in the Carboniferous. And the mammal lineage, right, at the very tip of the tree is the mammals that are around today. But that whole lineage that goes from that branch point where they branched off from reptiles all the way up to mammals, that all of that whole group are called synapsids. So mammals are a type of synapsid, but there are a whole bunch of other synapsids that are extinct, you know, and the one that everyone knows about is Demetrodon, right? right. So Demetrodon, you know, you get it in your bag of plastic dinosaurs. The big um, sail-backed. The big sail-backed four-legged animal. Sprawling um, thing. From the, sprawling from the Permian And of that's Texas. our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma. Yeah, exactly. Well, kind of, sort of. That's not in our direct lineage, though, right? I mean... Yeah, it depends on how you... What kind of sort of classification scheme you have. Yeah, it's whether or not you have a, a shared ancestry uh, with that one branch, right? Right. So, Demetrodon is a synapsid, and so it does share common ancestry with mammals. That is a very, very, you know, distant ancestry back 300 million years ago or so. But it already shows some features of mammals, right? And so the, the one feature you can point to Demetrodon that actually is a mammalian feature already is that it has canines. Oh. And so that's one of the features. So, you know, way back 300 million years ago, there are very, very few mammal features. As you go up the tree, you sort of add these consecutive mammal features. You know, if you want to go along the spine of the tree, all the other side branches are doing their all all their other things. I think we'll probably talk about Lystrosaurus. That's an animal that's doing something totally different than right. mammals. But already along the spine, one of the features that you see in Demetrodon that is a mammalian feature is the fact that it has canines. And if now, you look a around, synapsid, but a synapsid means one hole in the or it has one hole in the skull. And for humans, that's kind of our cheekbone area. Right. right. So like if you're chewing gum and you see the side of your 
your <laughs> sort of right here, your temple sort right. of bulge. That's the muscle that's actually passing through that synapsid opening. Right. Ah, that's right. cool. It just happens to be that our brain is so big that it's pushed it out. And the reptiles are diapsids because they have two holes in the skull. Reptiles are diapsids. Right. Most most reptiles today are diapsids. Yeah, exactly. So one of the reasons you don't call them mammal-like reptiles is that they never were reptiles to begin with. They're this, and they split from reptiles and amphibians, and they're often this other branch. And I wrote this down. All mammals are synapsids, but not all synapsids are mammals, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, the, the, the phrase mammal-like reptile sort of harkens back to this I don't know how technical you want to get on this podcast, but, you know, pre-cladistic ideas of how we talk about relationship. And so for many years, reptiles was just thought to be sort of this grade of organization. So if you were sprawling and if you were ectothermic and if you had four legs, you know, and you were not an amphibian, you were a reptile. Ah. Right. So it's, so it's sort of like a it's a sort of a, a classification based on partly what you have and partly what you don't have. Right. In terms of anatomy, the the way that a lot of paleontologists think about relationships today is that we're interested in the actual phylogenetic relationships or the the equivalent to genealogical relationships. You know, who's related to whom um, and to varying degrees. The cladogram is like a big family tree and you see where the branches are. And so on one side are, are reptiles. And so right. if, you, if you're talking about synapsids versus the reptile lineage, we were never reptiles. Right. So why would we call ourselves mammal-like reptiles? I mean, it's, it really is a terminology that's based on... We have a common ancestor. Sure, sure. I mean, in mammal-like reptiles means that it has some features of mammals and it has some features of reptiles. Right. But really the reptile features are these primitive features that everything had at the time. Right. It wasn't particularly a reptile feature. Within that non-mammalian synapsids, before we get to mammals, there's all kinds of varieties. And you, this is your specialty, right, is that you've been looking at all these characteristics and helping sort through all this. Yeah, exactly. So there's Demetrodon and the animals that are around it at the same time as Demetrodon, mostly from the Carboniferous and from the early Permian of Texas. And so you know, Demetrodon is one you might be familiar with. Adaphosaurus is the other sailback that's mm -hmm. got the little tubercles sticking off the end of the spines. There's a variety of them, like Catilorhynchus is something that I studied when I was a, when I did on my master's uh, thesis. So these caseids, which are these sort of large-bodied herbivores that you see in the early Permian. Um, and then the fossil record really shifts. And the fossil record, you know, you no longer have fossils of synapsids after really the early or maybe the very, very beginning of the middle Permian in North America. So if you want to study, you know, more recent synapsids, you actually go, have to go somewhere else. And that's primarily to South Africa. South Africa and Russia is where the fossil record picks up in the middle Permian, late Permian, early Triassic. And really, so my research goes from the Permian through the Triassic. And then there are other, you know, Jurassic non-mammalian uh, synapsids. And, and, but I don't really tend to focus on those. I'm really sort of hovering right around the middle Permian to the middle Triassic. So the Carboniferous and the Permian are the last two epochs of the, the Paleozoic. And the Triassic is the beginning of the Mesozoic, the age of dinosaurs. And they're the last two Carboniferous Permian. Yeah, so the last two periods of the Paleozoic. Right. And the way I tell my students, you can remember this is if you want to if you want to remember the order, it's cats only sleep, dogs can play. 
<laughs> Cambrian Ordovician. <laughs> That's a good one. Silurian. Yeah. Well, we, um, we have we have many of uh, monomics to help us. <laughs> Crusty old sourdoughs make perfect pancakes, toast, juice, and coffee. But here in America, we split the Carboniferous into the Mississippian, Mississippian and the Pennsylvanian, and, Pennsylvania. and then the Permian, and then of course. As you said, there's not a lot of Permian stuff in the United States. There's sort of middle Permian, but it gets really interesting. And most paleontologists and actually just people interested in science, a really bad thing happened at the end of the Permian, and pretty much everything died. So if you want to find those Permian-Triassic rocks, you've got to go elsewhere in the world. As you said, traditionally, you go to the Karoo or Russia, but you're... Your interest drove you to other new places, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, those are the those are the two places that you would go to look, especially at that Permo-Triassic mass extinction on land, right. uh, Russia and South Africa. And one of the things that I was really interested in was, you know, these are basically snapshots of what's happened, right. you know, at that time period in Earth, and they happen to be on other sides of the pole, which is good, but we don't really know what's going on anywhere else in the world. At that time, you know, we're making these big inferences about what happened at the extinction based on sort of two samples. I see. It's kind of the same way that you talk about it in the Cretaceous, right? I mean, if you look at the end of the Cretaceous and you want to look for a record, a geological record that spans that boundary on land, you're looking in the North American, you know, Montana, Wyoming area, that's the only place on Earth that you can really do that in terms of a continuous record. And that's the same thing you have in, in South Africa across the Permo-Triassic boundary is this continuous record. I was interested in saying, well, what's happening outside of these well-known regions? And so in 2003, in, in West Africa, in Niger, so when I went to look for dinosaurs with Paul Serino, um, the last time I went in 2000, I said, um, can we go take a look at these Permian rocks? Uh, uh-huh. They're going to be sort of on the way to where <laughs> we're looking for can dinosaurs. Can we stop off there and check them out? Can we stop off there? And so we stopped. We happened to stop off, and one of the guys on the team found this great skull, actually found two skulls, Wow! Um, which we wound up naming as one fossil. Yeah, so one was a fossil amphibian that we named Nigerpatan, or the slitherer from Niger. <laughs> and the other one... I know that guy. Um, yeah, the other one we named Bunastegos, which is the sort of knobbly-headed pariasaur reptile, which are this this group of extinct reptiles that are around only in the Permian. Um, they're plant eaters, um, and they've got these big flanges that hang off oh, the yeah. bottom of their They're their, crazy their looking, skulls. yeah. Yeah, so pariah means... Pariasaur actually means cheek lizard. So there are these things that have these gigantic jowls that hang down. Cheeky bastards. And so I started working on that. And then uh, we went, went and did field work in Niger a couple of years. And then I started in 2007 um, going to to Tanzania and Zambia. Um, and that's been super productive. And we've been going almost every other year since 2007. And then you went to Antarctica as well, right? And I yeah, and then I went to I've been to Antarctica four times now. Um, wow. Yeah, two thousand three, five, ten, and seventeen. And I was really hoping to find Permian fossils, vertebrates from Antarctica, but you you do not see them there. Um, you yeah. find plants, you find a little bit of insect material, but you do see vertebrate fossils show up in the Triassic. Ah, and and so 
Um, Why is that? Why is there good deposition in the Triassic, but not in the Permian? Well, that's one of the big questions, right? Um, (laughs) It's it's probably a combination of temperature change and the what type of sediment you're preserving. Um, So in the Permian, you get lots of coal and you get lots of swampy areas, and maybe those maybe animals were there, but they're just not being preserved. Um, but when you get into the Triassic, you see lots of lots of vertebrate fossils, um, especially things like Lystrosaurus, um, which is, seems to be the most common. What is the dominant vertebrate in the Permian? In the Permian in South Africa, it's a huge variety of animals. Um, so most of them are synapsids. I mean, that's the interesting thing is that in the Permian, especially in the Middle Permian, Late Permian, most of the animals, most of the land living tetrapods that you see in the fossil record are synapsids, and there's a variety of them. Some are called Gorgonopsians. You probably you know yeah. know that name. I love that it's name. Sort of saber toothy. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, synapsids. There are Therosophilians, there are Cynodonts, there are Dicynodonts, which, you know, Lystrosaurus is one of those. It's these plant-eating animals. There's Biomersuchians. Those are a lot of Permian animals to take in. If you go to our website and look at Christian Sidor's Paleo Nerds page, you'll see all those animals, plus many more, in all their living Permian color. Yeah, there's a whole variety of animals that are around at that time. So that was the uh, the non-mammalian synapsid heyday in the Permian. And can you describe uh, what the Permian world was like? This is Pangaea, and it's one vast continent. And is it a desert? What's what's that land like? Yeah, so that's probably the key characteristic of the Permian is that's about the maximal coalescence of all the continents. Right. So the continents are almost always in constant motion. And the last time they came together was towards the end of the Permian. And since then, they've basically been spreading apart again. Um, and so we're still in this split apart mode until we get, you know, until North America wraps around and eventually hits the other side. Comes back again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so so the key characteristic of the Permian is that it is this time of maximal coalescence. There was also big things happening in terms of composition of the atmosphere. So oxygen levels were at their highest in the Carboniferous. So you probably recognize you see those gigantic dragonflies and a bunch of these just enormous insects in the Carboniferous. That's because oxygen levels were so high then and they were tapering towards the Permian. And at the same time that these oxygen levels were decreasing, you get not to like catastrophic levels, I should say. It's just they were decreasing from a, from a high in the Carboniferous. But then you get this mass extinction at the end of the Permian. And so there's a variety of things that are happening at the same time. And the fo- like I mentioned before, the fossils that we know of from the Permian, from especially from the Middle and Late Permian, are these Russian and South African ones. And if you put them back on the globe, back in the Permian, they are pretty high latitude. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and so... You know, that research that I did in Niger, the, the impetus for it was partly because there's hardly anything known from the center of the continent. And so you've got this good record from the southern hemisphere. You've got a, a good record from the northern hemisphere. But in that sort of equatorial region, you don't really have very much at all. And anywhere, really only, anywhere in the world? Uh, not for, for vertebrate fossils, right. Basically anywhere in the world. But didn't, it, but didn't Pangaea break up and that became all the oceans and the, and the spreading of the, all the rift valleys? Well, yeah, sure, it did. Um, Eventually, yeah. If you had a map of Pangaea, that continent straddles the entire, you know, goes from 
almost right. from pole to yeah. pole. Not quite, but yeah. there's a lot of interior continent in the cent- right. Like right hanging out over the equator. And we basically have no vertebrate fossils from there. And Niger happens to be back in the back well, in the Permian. Could have been a massive desert, right? I mean, is there any evidence that it was a huge desert with sandstone now? sort of what we found, right, is that um, if you look at the paleo climate inferences for that time period, the up, you know, Russia and South Africa are in these cold temperate regions, the whole center of the continent is a large desert. And that's partly because it's kind of like the same thing you have today when you have a rain shadow or the center of a continent can tend to be dry because you get those prevailing winds coming off, they dump all their moisture, and then you're left with not much so much like uh, Australia, the center of Australia is yeah. desert. Yeah, but yeah. Exactly. To imagine Pangaea, this one vast, vast, only one landmass in the world and one vast ocean, Panthalassia. Uh, Panthalassia. Uh, uh, how do you say the name of the ocean? Panthalassia. Panthalassia. There we go. But yeah, to imagine that. But you've been finding fossils in the center of that vast, vast continent. It had to have been just a horrific desert. Yeah, and so we. So that was one of the things that was surprising is that there are really only two places that have vertebrate fossils from this big central section of Pangaea in the, you know, middle or late Permian, and they're Niger and Morocco uh, that we know of now. I mean, there may be other ones that we'll find in the in the future. But these are the two places. And when we went and did this fieldwork in Niger, we found like that Priosaur reptile that I mentioned. And it's bizarre. It's, you know, it's it. One of the things we think it actually was, was pretty upright posture, which really? it's, yeah, it's got this really strange humeral anatomy. The, the arm bone and the, the elbow joint suggest that this animal held its forelimb under the body, mm. not sprawling out and splayed out like most other Pariasaurs. Uh, same thing with the hind limb, although the hind limb is sort of like that in other pariasaurs. And then the amphibians that we found there, we found, we named two amphibians. One was Nijerpaton, the other one we named Saharastega. And these amphibians say, why do you get these amphibians in the middle of this desert? Well, there had to be sort of some kind. Right. Yeah. Just, just going to ask that. <laughs> yeah. And so, and the other thing you find there, which is really bizarre, is you found some massive fossilized trees. Oh. And so we're working west of what are called the Ayer Mountains. And though that mountain range is actually something that was there in the Permian. Oh. It's a very ancient mountain range. And so it's probably that there was a water source in those mountains. An oasis. Yeah, basically created an oasis that the water source came out of those mountains, flowed to the west, and then eventually just died into the Well, it the, would have to be desert. massive in order to have an ecosystem. Exactly. And so we wound up doing, there was a geochemist on my team, a guy named uh, Neil Tabor from SMU in Texas, and was able to do some of the geochemistry of the rocks there and basically validated that the climate models had predicted that this area would be desert. And he found, um, based on sampling of those rocks, that it was hyper-arid. And I, I think he, he had a, a some kind of, I can't remember, I'd have to remember, go back and look at the paper on how many millimeters of water you think there was actually per year. And it was a... a a tiny, tiny little amount. 
Interesting. Uh. So what happened, in your opinion, I know there's so many opinions, at the end of the Permian? What drove that huge extinction? Well, I mean, yeah, this is the, this, the, well, the can I say extinction. Can I say, I, I went down that rabbit hole last night and I, I typed <laughs> in Permian extinction and the Wikipedia entry has got to be 40 pages. <laughs> and I'm falling asleep as I'm reading. There are so many theories and counter theories but there's three major possible causes, sir. Well, we had uh, Peter Ward on recently, and he had some very interesting ideas. And I know you've you've collaborated with Peter, or you know Peter. Yeah. Christian, we're anxious to hear your take on it. Well, <laughs> the floor is yours, sir. <laughs> Figure it out for us, will you? So the areas that I've done field work in have actually never been preserving the actual Permo-Triassic boundary. Or at least in Antarctica, there probably is a Permo-Triassic boundary, but there's no vertebrates before the boundary. There's only vertebrates after. In Niger, there are vertebrates in the Permian, but nothing in the Triassic. In Tanzania and Zambia, we have fossils from the Permian and we have fossils from the Triassic, but we don't actually have that interval Contact. of the Permo-Triassic oh. boundary. So I've been interested in the Permo-Triassic because of the profound change in the animals that you see before and after but I've actually never done studies of the boundary interval itself. So what I'm going to say is, you know, basically what you could read on Wikipedia and in, in, <laughs> in the variety of other, you know, scientific but, publications. But the thing is, as an expert, but as an expert and someone who lives and right. breathes this, you must have, you must, you're able to form a better idea than Ray or I because you live and breathe paleontology. <laughs> we will respect your opinion, you know, Dave. Yes. I, I don't care what Dave says, but what do you say? <laughs> Well, I think I I think well, let me go back and say that, you know, 20 years ago, the idea of the Permo-Triassic boundary was I think Doug Irwin wrote a book and his his suggestion was like murder on the Orient Express, right? Like everything contributed to <laughs> this one thing, right? And we don't know. And and since then, the cards seem to be stacked in favor of a Siberian eruptions of volcanic outflows. And then perhaps, and I think this is what's happened in maybe the last five years, the idea that, that those eruptions actually triggered pre-existing massive coal seams in that region. And so you had the combination of the volcanic eruptions plus the, all this coal um, effectively being put into the atmosphere very, very quickly. Being burnt by the lava from those Exactly. So, so like the, the Carboniferous Age coal and it's burning and it just doesn't stop. Exactly. And and you're just injecting these massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and, and plus all the other things and sulfur and everything and that makes, else. That makes acid rain, which makes the oceans acidic and then the calcareous shells can't do their thing. Yeah, and so you'll see a lot of the Permo-Triassic um, mass extinction research is focused on the invertebrate record from China. And that's because that's where the Permo-Triassic boundary is defined. That's the early Triassic is defined at a set of beds in Meishan, China. As the definition is, is, the first appearance of this particular fossil is the beginning of the Triassic. And that happens to be a great area to do this work because they've got volcanic ashes in there. So you can actually see. Oh, you can do the dating. You can do the dating. And China is relatively close to all of this uh, Siberian eruptions that are happening. And so you, that's where we know the most about the Permatrassic mass extinction is from, from those marine rocks in China. And then you try to take that and go elsewhere, it's a little harder. Yeah. 
a paper you worked on made the New York Times recently, and that organism, that creature, made it through the Permian-Triassic, yeah, yeah, made it through the boundary and survived after. Tell us about uh, that paper and why it made the New York Times and, <laughs> and who this little guy is who has got a beak, four legs, and uh, looks like a dog. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a corgi with tusks, right? I yeah. love him. Lystrosaurus. <laughs> Lystrosaurus. Lystrosaurus, right? Yeah, Lystrosaurus. Okay, so, so Lystrosaurus. Got it. Yeah, so Lystrosaurus is a dicynodont. So it's one of these, you know, non-mammalian therapsids. It's a group of, of synapsids that was around from the middle Permian all the way through the late Triassic. And they were... Dicynodonts were the most common herbivores in the Permian, uh, in the in the end of the Permian, and they are these really strange. I mean, this is podcast won't do this justice, but dicynodonts. Ray's probably got a creative mind. Why don't you tell people what a dicynodont looks like? I mean, well, I, I, well, help me out here. Well, it's it's sort of sausage shaped, <laughs> right? Yes, <laughs> and uh, with four legs. Uh, Dave's got uh, a picture of one there uh, that he's showing me right now. To help me out. We'll have and, it on our webpage. And uh, kind of a little beak, uh, but then basically they've just got tusks, right? And no other teeth. They generally have no other teeth besides two tusks, and that's where their name comes from. Dicyno makes basically means two dog tooth. Dicynodont. Wait, they tooth. don't have molars? They don't have any chewing molars? No, they have basically what? they have beaks, right? Beaks. They have beaks and then tusks. And so, you know, the other animal that I always try to most people don't know it these days is you remember Gamera from those old uh Godzilla movies. Ah, it was the turtle wow. that flew, but it had the tusks, but it had the tusk that faced <laughs> oh, upwards, right. not the tusk that faced downwards. Yeah, You're right. dating yourself, yeah. But yeah, yeah no, I know, I know, I know. But anyway, you know, dicynodonts were, you know, the, the main herbivores, and Lystrosaurus was the dicynodont that appeared at the end of the Permian, at least in South Africa, um, as a relatively large animal, you know, about the size of a cow. It's this species called Lystrosaurus macagei. And it made it through the Permo-Triassic mass extinction. And once you get into Triassic rocks, you see thousands of Lystrosaurus specimens, literally thousands of Lystrosaurus specimens. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. In, in South Africa, you can go and look at the, you know, the fossil record there and you're stumbling over Lystrosaurus. You, you know, you sort of have to take your mind off of looking for Lystrosaurus if you're looking in those rocks because you have to look for other things. And I was in China last summer, two summers ago, and in those same age rocks, the early Triassic, 99% of what we found was Lystrosaurus. Wow. Is it possible they evolved because the the Permian Triassic extinction was a series of pulses? It wasn't just one day like a comet. It was a series of pulses. Is it possible they evolved and adapted as their world was collapsing around them? And is that that why? Are there, are there any other creatures that that made it through the boundary? There's only us, maybe two other species that actually made it through in South Land Africa land tetrapods that you know you could you could point to fossils in the permian and par fossils in the triassic and you know your idea dave about whether these animals were were adapting along the way i i, I kind of believe that instead of them adapting along the way they already had something going for them 
And that just happened to allow them to make it through compared to other species. I wouldn't say that they were adapting because I think it was this extinction, based on how it affected everything else, was too fast. Happened too fast for animals to actually adapt. Because why would Lystrosaurus adapt versus, you know, all these other animals that are around, close relatives of it, that, that didn't adapt? How, how wide is that boundary between the Permian and the Triassic? I mean, the Cretaceous is a Thursday at four o'clock. Right. <laughs> is it 10 million? Is it 20 million years? The dates that you get out of China suggest that it's on the order of something like 40,000 years. Wow. Which is a long, long... It's still a long time. Terrible yeah. dying period. But So Lystrosaurus makes it through into the Triassic... The world has been washed clean of all these other creatures, and now we suddenly have all these marine reptiles going back to the sea, as we've learned. And so the, the table's a reset, but what's full of Lystrosauruses, what happened with this one in, in Antarctica, and why did it make the New York Times? <laughs> yeah, so, so like I said, Lystrosaurus, the Permian one, McKay guy, is really big. When you get to the Triassic, all the Lystrosaurus species, there's a, there's a couple of them then, are relatively small. They're sort of, like I said, sort of corgi-sized animals. Oh, um, cute. I want one. <laughs> yeah. And, Here, boy. <laughs> and one of the things we found in the Triassic Lystrosaurus fossil record is that these animals were actually burrowing animals. Wow. The cow-sized one, probably not so much, but the little ones definitely were, were good burrowers. And you've got examples of their skeletons down in the bottoms of their preserved um, dens, really. Oh, wow. And, and so we found actually lots of burrows in the Antarctic. When we were down in Antarctica this last time in the Shackleton Glacier region, I collected a whole bunch of them for the Burke of burrows that are actually infilled with rock. Wow. And so they stand out very, very nicely from the surrounding rock. We didn't find any with Lystrosaurus in them, but similar burrow fossils from South Africa actually have Lystrosaurus in them, Orthronexon or some of these other early Triassic. Buried animals. alive. Yeah, basically buried alive. And so Lystrosaurus was a burrower, for sure. So as, as I understand it, you took the tusk and looked at the tusks, right? Yeah, and so the thing that we did, you find Lystrosaurus in Antarctica, and Antarctica in the Triassic represents something that we don't have today, right? We don't have something within the polar circle that lots of animals were living in this, in this area. A temperate um, climate. It's a rel yeah, rel we don't have that, but it was still within the polar circle, meaning that it's still having this crazy photo period throughout the year, right? I mean, Ray is sort of familiar with it in Alaska. Six but months of light and six months of darkness. Yeah, exactly. So I've always been wondering, were these animals just sort of wandering in for the good six months and then wandering back out for the, the bad six months? You know, because the fossil itself only tells you where the fossil died. It doesn't even tell you where the fossil lived. Right. And so I was hoping that the tusks, which actually preserve their, their ever growing tusks like a like an elephant today. If you actually looked at the lines that are laid down as the tusk grows, could we actually see some cyclicity that would tell us, oh, these animals, you know, look at them in South Africa and look at them in Antarctica. Could you compare those two and actually say these are actually all one population and these animals in Antarctica were just walking in and then walking back out? Turns out I had a very smart graduate student named Megan Whitney, and, and she looked at this, and we didn't have the sample sizes to do that, um, to do that type of comparison. But what she did notice that in the Antarctic, primarily in the Antarctic ones, those lines like a tree ring, when that tree ring stops growing for a long period of time, it lays down a really thick line, right? And that thick line, we actually saw lots of them in the Antarctic ones and not very many of those in the, the African ones, the Southern African ones. 
And the only animal that's around today that lays down these thick lines at such a high latitude are rodents that hibernate. So rodent incisors are also ever growing, right? And if these animals are hibernating for long periods of time in areas like Siberia, they actually lay down a hibernation mark in their tooth. Oh, wow. Are these growth yeah. rings, the annual rings, or just growth no, rings based on the they animals? Are, they're daily rings. Oh. Yeah, they, it goes down. Yeah, they go down to dentine is ever growing. They lay down a, a series of different cycles, but they actually lay down daily rings as part of this. And so that's what Megan was able to show in that collection of Lystrosaurus fossils that we have from Antarctica, that they laid down lots of thick bands. That's what we interpreted as hibernation marks. Or they're called hibernation marks, but they're basically an evidence of the slowing of metabolism that we call torpor today. Torpor, yeah, I know what that's like. <laughs> Till I get my coffee. Yeah, so. yeah. Ray, that's the Alaska six months. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell their age from counting those rings? Unfortunately, no, because they wear off their teeth, right? So the oh, teeth, are they're growing out, but as they are being worn down by the beak and worn down by everything else, you lose the tip of the, of the tusk. Um, we did actually find in another specimen of a dicynodont that they also probably wind up using their tusks for either combat or for, they did it for something traumatic because we actually found- I see that, yeah. A pathology in the tusk where, you know, you normally, if you, if you cut one of these tusks in section, you would see these perfect tree rings, right? Perfect circles. And in one of them, we actually found this really kind of clover-shaped thing sticking off to the side. And I was like, what is that? What's going on there? Actually, it turned out to be- um, trauma. It's something that you see in animals that have tusks today, like warthogs, where they're using them male and male or, or fighting with each other. Fighting. They actually, yeah, they actually sort of jar the teeth enough that it disrupts that nice circular growth pattern and it creates this sort of weird structure. But wait, couldn't he have fallen down a cliff and banged his tooth <laughs> on a rock? That, well, that's what Meg says. That's, yeah. Meg says they're awfully derpy looking animals. Yeah, they probably derpy. just fell over and hit their face. Now, yeah. I like to think of them as fighting with those big tusks. The, yeah, I was looking at your Dicinodont tusk trauma paper. That's a great paper. And So you're digging up all this stuff in Antarctica, in, in Africa. All these bones are coming to the Burke? Are they collected at the Burke? So the Antarctic ones are uh, reposited here at the Burke Museum. So we have about now 300 Antarctic fossils. And, you know, no country owns Antarctica. Right. right? So when you go down there as part of one of these science teams, Part of the deal is that you have to make these fossils accessible to the world because the U.S. is a signatory on the Antarctic Treaty. And so these fossils are available for anyone to come see, and we have to document all of those fossils so anyone can actually search and find what we have. The fossils from Africa, however, um, are all going back. That's so great. the fossils Good. from Tanzania are going back to the National Museum of Tanzania. The fossils from Zambia are going back to the Livingston Museum through the National Heritage Conservation Commission. And the fossils from Niger are going back to the museum in, in Niamey. I heard the Listosaurus Society wants those back in <laughs> Antarctica. There's a bunch of Listosauruses. Yeah. There's there's a, there's the they want the repatriation. <laughs> the Alaskan chapter wants our polar friends back. But, uh, hey, that's just so cool that there's uh, all those uh, great fossils there at the Burke Museum. And can I look at those online somehow? All of the Antarctic fossils are online. Wow, so we okay. have a database. If you go to the Burke Museum and you go to the paleontology tab and you go to search the collections, you can go and click on vertebrate paleontology and then you can type in Antarctica for the continent or actually I think it's a pull down 
and you can see all the Antarctic fossils that we have. That's really cool. Like I said, we have about 300, but when you're in Antarctica, you have a very limited chance to collect something, and so you collect everything you can. It's been our strategy. There's no high grading, so... I wanted to ask you about that. It's not cheap to get to these places. How does that happen, and, and how much time do you have? What, what's it like? How expensive is it? Yeah, so all research in Antarctica goes through National Science Foundation through their polar programs group. And they handle all of the logistics. Mm. And I can't imagine actually how much it costs to do because we're talking about, you know, for example, when we were in the Shackleton Glacier region in 2017. Did you leave from New Zealand or South America? From New Zealand. We went from Christchurch. We flew to McMurdo. We spent about two weeks at McMurdo getting all of our gear ready. Um, and you're in a C-130 going down or a 7 yep. uh, Yeah. I've been, on, I've been on all of them. Uh, right, C-5 right, Galaxy right. and a... Uh, 757 and a LC-130. Yeah, um, all of those. And all of the logistics are incredibly difficult. So, you know, flying, not only flying to Antarctica, but then taking LC-130 and flying out to the base camp. Base camp has 20 people working there, you know, people grooming the runway, people having to move 40,000 gallons of fuel, two helicopters, helicopter teams, helicopter mechanics. Um, these are big expeditions and the Shackleton camp, I think by the end of it had about 60 scientists that had either worked there or passed through that area. And these things only happen every five or 10 years because they're so logistically intensive and so costly to do. The vertebrate paleontology in Antarctica from, from the Fremont formation, which is where we were collecting all our vertebrates, you know, I can count on, think one hand, the number of times vertebrate paleontologists have been down there to look. Mm. 6970, 7071, 8586, 9495, you know, and then us. And that was wow. basically it. Wow. You know? Wow. The uh, we recently had John Long on who's was been down there looking for Devonian stuff and uh that's uh pretty mind blowing. So yeah, you apply for funding, apply to the National Science you, Foundation to go south. Is that basically how it works? Yeah, you, you apply, you you know, you talk about what kind of research you want to do, why you want to do it, why it's important. And you get funded to do the research, but you don't have to worry about funding for all of the logistics. They actually, we applied and they held our grant proposal for a number of years because there was no deep field camp. Once they had enough teams to say, okay, this is now feasible that we've got 60 scientists who want to work out of this place. Now it becomes logistically possible to do this. Then they said, okay, now we're going to approve your grant and you're going to go down in three years to do this project. Are you going back? I will apply as soon as the <laughs> next time, you know, I hear from the community that there's uh, impetus to go down. I definitely will. The other thing I should mention about Antarctica, which is another very strange thing for doing fieldwork there, you know, in addition to all the logistical stuff, is that there's basically no erosion. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Right? So there's no running water. Right. The only erosion you get there is basically wind erosion. And so I was really worried when we went down this, this last time to the Shackleton Glacier region because there had been two teams there previous, you know, prior to us. What if they collected all the fossils? There are not going to be any new fossils eroding out, right? It's not like you go to Montana and every summer there's rain and every summer there's, you know, frost and everything else and some new but fossils are going to show ice, up. Isn't there ice erosion from the cracking and the thermal expansion? Isn't there that type of erosion? But it's minimal, huh? A little bit. It's actually most of the time when it snows or when there's spin drift that comes onto those rockets, sublimates off. It actually doesn't go to liquid water. Right. So right. I bet it's probably highly regulated. You can pretty much only surface collect. You can't dig 
big trenches and you're, so you're, you're never really digging deep it's ice the other thing that i should mention is that people always say like how do you decide where to dig aren't you digging through a lot of ice no we're only looking at exposed rock that's mm. there and we had pictures from the 1970 expedition and the areas that were f devoid of snow and ice were pretty much the same areas back in the 70s at the, as they are today. And we actually even found some stuff from those 1970 expeditions. I found a nice little piece of coffee creamer. <laughs> and I found a pair of, found a pair of gloves. Wow. Um, you do have wow. to be careful what rock piles you move down there, though. So, Christian, for a guy like you who's been in all these exotic, cool places, you came, you were, you loved dinosaurs early on kind of left your love behind, got reignited in in uh, college, and now you're you're really out there digging lots of fossils. Is there a particular fossil moment in your career that just shines in your memory that maybe blew you was away. pivotal, blew you away, was transcendent, was... So what's, turn or, over that rock and oh And there it was. God. Well, I, I will, yeah, I'll give you one. Um, I don't know if it was in terms of the career, but one of the most amazing fossils that we've ever found was we were collecting a Lystrosaurus okay. at Graphite Peak in Antarctica. Um, it was myself, my grad student at the time, Adam Huttenlocker, and Roger Smith, who's a paleontologist from Cape Town. Graphite Peak is actually a very historical locality because it's actually where the first Triassic fossil from Antarctica ever came from. Okay. And we were collecting this Lystrosaurus and collecting Lystrosaurus down there, plaster generally doesn't work. So we are using a rock saw and cutting out this fossil and then taking wedges and chisels and then basically popping it out. The rock is really hard. Like it doesn't erode, and so it doesn't have this layer. Plaster freezes when you try to do it. Yeah. Plaster freezes before it actually sets. Um, we, we did get around that again this year a little bit better, and we were popping this Lystrosaurus off. Right. We had collected it. We had cut down numerous times, and we had popped it off, and we finally got these big mallets and crack cracked it, and it popped, and we lifted it off, and underneath that Lystrosaurus was a skeleton, almost complete skeleton, of a little reptile called Prolacerta. Oh, wow. And, wow. yeah, and that was, that was a, you know, that was amazing to actually wow. see that. Because we were wow. collecting this one fossil and, you know, underneath it was this other spectacular fossil. And so we collected that one, and it's actually on display at the museum right now. Oh, really? Cool. I'll be there in a few months to check that out. So if you could get in the old time machine and go back in time... Christian, yeah. I'm assuming you go back to the Permian, or is my assumption wrong? Where would you time travel back to? I would ab absolutely go back to the Permian. I would love to see what you know these animals were actually like. I mean, the, my biggest thing that I would do if I went back to the Permian is okay. I would bring a thermometer, and I would go <laughs> to see which of these synapsids were warm-blooded and which ones weren't. Endothermic. Yeah, because that, that is the key thing that we still debate on forever is when did mammal endothermia actually evolve? In what little research I did, uh, uh, here's a ventriloquist talking, the bones show the, the vascules and, and the blood flow of a warm-blooded organism, correct? Yes, no. Yeah, I mean, there's been, so paleohistology has really come up in you know, the last decade or two to become a really prominent aspect of what people do in paleontology. Um, and especially when you're interested in sort of the origin of mammals broadly and what these animals in the Permian and Triassic were doing, there's a, there's a number of people who are actually doing lots of work on the bone histology. And, and generally, there's a correlation between how fast you grow and the type of bone you lay down. 
and animals that grow fast tend to be the ones that are warm-blooded, right? Birds today, mammals today grow pretty quickly. They lay down a particular type of bone. And therefore, if you see that bone in the fossil record, you can infer that they grew quickly and therefore they, they were probably warm-blooded. And that's the general thing, but there's lots of caveats to that. So I'm imagining you with this thermometer trying to uh, use it on a, one of these big animals. And <laughs> yeah, where, where do you I put it? Yeah, yeah, where do you put it? <gasps> you know, how are you going to yeah. do that? But actually, Christian, when do we get the first real mammal? That's much later in time. Mammal, mammal. When does the synapsid become a mammal? Yeah, so traditionally, you would have an animal called like Morganucodon, right? That's probably the traditional earliest mammal. From when? Um, early Jurassic. Oh, okay. So that's the middle of the Mesozoic. Yeah, way, way more recent than so anything. 180 million doing. years ago? Yeah, and the, the fossils that I'm studying probably max out at about 240. Right, so it's significantly younger um, than that. Okay. Yeah, there we go, Morgan. There you go. <laughs> All right. So wait, say that again, Morgan Bukanukanuka with me. Morganukadon. Morganukadon. That sounds like something. Made I mean, up. That, that's that. Morganukadon is the traditional early mammal, right? Today, and again, I don't want to get into the taxonomy issues, but today, most paleontologists would say that clade name, the name mammalia, should only refer to the common ancestor of the mammals that are around today. So the monotreme, the pouched mammals, the marsupials, and the placental, the placental mammals. Yeah. And Morganugodon actually falls outside of that group. It's earlier than that group. Right. So there's still, there's still you know, a little bit of technical... We'll let you guys sort all that out. But Morganucodon is just a little old guy, sort of mouse-sized or something? Tiny, absolutely tiny. The skull of one of those things is sort of the size of your fingernail. It looks and like so a he rat, is our great, 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 Yeah, yeah wow. absolutely tiny little guy. Little <laughs> little sort of insectivorous mm. um, yeah. mammal. But it's but it's got a lot of the mammalian features. It, it has milk teeth and adult teeth. It has it has the primarily the ear uh, a lot of uh, similarities in the ear function that we have today. Um, yeah, it's got a lot of mammalian features. We ask every guest on our show a little question about. The state of science at the moment, and you as a curator and a paleontologist and a scientist, in my opinion, science is under attack. And I think mainly because of social media, people are believing opinions as facts and people are criticizing scientists because they don't want to believe what they're saying. So how can you, how can we educate the public or educate our friends to let them know that science is real, science is based on observation, and opinion is just that. Opinion is how someone feels. So how can we fix this problem we're having right now? Sum it up, man. <laughs> yeah, what do you say? I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. I mean, personally, I think my position at the museum allows me to do a little bit of that because a lot of scientists, and, and paleontologists in general, I mean, a lot of scientists are doing their research, but they don't have very much interaction with the public. Paleontology is nice in that we tend to be interacting with the public because the public loves our, loves our research, um, loves, what we're, loves the kinds of things that we're interested in. And so we have the opportunity to do some of this in a way that someone who is studying you know, a particular gene enzyme or something like that probably isn't going to be interacting with the public as much. 
going to places like Antarctica and talking about what the fossils were like and what the climate was like back in the Triassic and how do we know that and how and therefore how do we know how climate has changed those are the kinds of things that paleontologists can do to sort of talk to the public we have you know in addition to Ray's exhibit coming up at the Burke we are going to do a small exhibit about the Antarctic research that I've been part of and Absolutely. That's the one of the kinds of things that we have to talk about in a display like this. We're going to show these really cool new fossil amphibians that we collected, but we also have to use that opportunity to say, what was the Earth like at that time? And how do we know the Earth was like that at that time? And, and then hopefully get people to think about um, how do we interpret what's going on today? Awesome. Well, I'm going to give a prediction. It's going to get cooler this winter. Oh, you <laughs> contrarian, you. Yes. Yeah. I'm just wondering, some people use the argument, Christian, that, uh, hey, well, the Earth was warm before, so what if there were plants at, at, in the Antarctic uh, way back when? Uh, this is all part of a natural cycle, and we're just returning to that. So the paleontology actually shows us that, yeah, it's no big deal. We're always changing. Well, how do you reply to that? I totally agree. <laughs> I totally agree. The, the Earth doesn't care. You know, the Earth doesn't care about the climate that it's on right now. I mean, it has changed a lot. I think what we care about is that humans have evolved during an ice age, and we are still technically in an ice age environment. And we've built a whole lot of stuff right next to the ocean at the present sea level. Like I said, the Earth doesn't care whether the sea level rise goes up or down, but humans sure will if sea level rise goes up the number of meters that we're but, talking about. The data shows that the CO2 levels have spiked in the last 150 years, right. and that is over 400 million years of lo looking at our atmosphere through various means, uh, and especially the more detailed atmospheric readings from the ice core samples the last uh, 50,000 years. It has spiked, and it's incontrovertible, this, this evidence. Well, that's what I'm asking. Christian is basically humans, sure, the Earth doesn't care, but we have a lot to do with what's going on right now, do we not? Oh, absolutely. I don't want to sound glib, you know, uh, but, you know, when you're talking about the sum total of what's going on on Earth, um, yeah, humans are affecting it disproportionately, you know, in tremendous ways. Um, but Don't say you know, tremendous. We, we, Horrendous. There's been other times in Earth history where these types of climate changes have occurred, and and it's true. But like I said, I, I just I feel like in those cases it was a natural event. Ours is not a natural event. But in any case, there will be animals and plants and ecosystems that change and evolve. We may not like it though. I mean, that's the point for us is that we have evolved in a certain type of environment. Um, we're used to a certain type of animal life and plant life. And in the future, if we want to maintain that, we have to change course. There you Some go. of those preferences <laughs> might not be available. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. I think we covered a lot. Uh, Christian, I really appreciate you joining us here on Paleo Nerds. And, and uh, yeah, oh, I've no. got a question, a real quick question. What's okay. the most awesome fossil in your museum? Like in the back room that like, you know, you secretly go and sneak and have a look at. Uh, I don't know if I go to sneak in. He's got keys. I'll say one of the fossils that I was most um, impressed by when I first got to the Burke Museum was this fossil ground sloth. Megatherium? It's a megalonyx ground sloth, not a megatherium, Dave. 
The Megatherium is a giant ground sloth from South America, man. Nice try, but wrong sloth, dude. Ground sloth was collected from Orcas Island, so one of the San Juan Islands. Oh. And it was dug out of a peat bog. Someone there was digging out a peat bog to make a lake. And this fossil, it feels like it died yesterday. You know, wow. these Ice Age fossils are something that I had never really experienced in my training. And here is this sloth femur that's foot and a half long, but it's so light. It might have been something that died yesterday and you're just picking up this bone off the ground. You oh. don't realize that it is, you know, 12 to 20,000 years old. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's breaking like a modern bone. It's not breaking like a fossil where it typically breaks like a filled a with rock, rock and heavy. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it feels like a modern wow. bone. That was really impressive That's to cool. me. There's That's the SeaTac cool. sloth, right? That's not the same sloth you're talking about, though, right? Not the same same species, same type of animal, same same time period. The SeaTac sloth, I mean, that's a great story. They were installing the, the, the approach wait, wait, lights. Wait, wait, is that, the, uh, is that yeah. in the uh, food well, hall yeah, at right there uh, the, food the airport? That's next to the Japanese place. <laughs> no, no. Sloth? That was then, man, but... Pre-COVID. So what's what what's the story behind the sea tax law? Construction team was digging the approach lights for the new runway at SeaTac in the 1960s, I believe, and they were going through some some uh, area, and they wound up finding most of a, another uh, ground sloth skeleton, and so that specimen is now at the Burke and it's on display in our gallery. Cool. Yeah. Cool. I love I've the got to go. Lot. Where's the Burke? What part of Seattle is it? What's the address? Uh, we are in the University District, so northeastern Seattle. Um, Up on 45th Street, and uh, there's a certain exhibit that opens there in December. Wait a minute. I used to play Giggles Comedy <laughs> Club back in the 80s and 90s. Oh, yeah. It's not too far. Yeah. Yeah, you, you district. There you go. But that's before Dave was really into museums, so hopefully Dave will come. Wrong. And, uh, I've been into museums my entire okay, life. Okay, okay. Here we oh go again. God. Here we go. <laughs> hey, Christian, that was an awesome, awesome time with you. Really, really. Awesome. Yeah, it was a great time, man. All right, so uh, we'll see you up in Seattle. Take care, man. Thank you. My pleasure. Oh, that was cool. I never knew. I never knew the Permian could be so much fun. <laughs> He's digging up some really cool fossils, man. Some of those crazy. But to go to Antarctica and do it there. I know, and and I I found out basically surface collect there. That's cool. You know, you can't. Well, I had no dig. idea. Yeah, yeah, I had no idea. There's no erosion. It makes sense. There's no erosion in Antarctica. So the idea that previous expeditions had already gotten everything, <laughs> you know, you don't worry about that. Yeah, but think about. Well, I would think the places that are exposed aren't massive, but. When you look at those photos of the places where John Long went, it is valleys and mountainsides of no snow. So, you know. Right. But, you know, when you're looking at those deposits, usually, you know, it's a valley and there'll be one outcrop where you can actually get to the rocks. You may know that those rocks continue for miles, but they're like they're inside, you know, so. Yeah. 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 I like the idea that um, our friend Kent Gibson, uh, he loves Pacific storms because he goes out and boom, there's an entire beach filled with seal skulls. Right. If you know how to spot him and all that. And yeah. uh, so he's yeah, always yeah. walking that beach. But yeah. same thing in the uh, Badlands in uh, the Hell Creek Formation. Every time, every, every new season is a year of erosion. In Antarctica, it's only the. Yeah. That's Put so a sound cool. effect that's in so there. That's so cool. Here's a completely random sound, Ray, because I'm not your monkey. Hey, we do me a favor. Yeah. You're going down there, aren't you, to that museum? 
I am. Would you go in the collections room in the little hall, the echoey halls of the collection room and and record a little um, jewel for us? You mean actually look at some of the stuff we were talking yeah. about? And give yeah, you a little yeah. post-show. Yes, yes. La-di-da. You are there. I you are there. Ray Troll, you are there. Okay. Do that. And maybe we can post Put some of those at... pictures on the web. Oh, yeah, yeah. Take some photos. Great episode. It was fun, David. As always, right. from As always. Ketchikan, from rainy, perpetually rainy Ketchikan. And I'm Over from out. Marine Lair, Ojai, California, where a... A group of deer walked by my back fence this morning, so that was awesome. Oh, how endearing. <laughs> okay. I'm quick. Bye, bye, Ray. I'm quick. See you, Dave. Bye. Thank you for listening to Paleo Nerds. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about what you heard today, check out our website, paleonerds.com. You'll find tons of pictures and links, including photographic evidence that today's guests and your hosts have been paleo nerds for a long, long time. Again, that's paleonerds.com. Thanks for listening. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. Don't you understand? I'm a paleo